There's a heritage here. Um, when I worked with Bob Hawke as his economic and trade advisor, we were very much occupied with the idea of reorienting the Australian economy from a shrinking, inward-looking economy protected by high trade barriers, which was really the post-war story of Australia, and uh, turning it into an outward-looking economy. Welcome to Blue Notes On Air. Join us as we chat with experts, commentators and analysts from the Asian region about business, culture and economics. It is 30 years since the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum was established under the Hawke government. Craig Emerson was a key advisor of Bob Hawke's. Emerson went on to be a government minister and principal advisor on the Asian century. He's just taken on the role of director of the Australian Apex Study Centre at RMIT University. Blue Notes contributing editor and foreign affairs expert Tony Walker spoke with Emerson about just what APEC can and can't achieve in an increasingly fraught region and why free trade and cooperation are more important than ever for the region's prosperity. Do you think APEC has lived up to those early high expectations with the Bogor principles and things that were put in place then, Craig, I, I suppose I have a slight impression it might have lost a bit of momentum. Well, this is the risk, and I see APEC as the hope of the side uh, in terms of those of us who believe in a global rules-based trading system and the gains from trade. Uh, the WTO is in real trouble, the World Trade Organization, and it does represent the global rules-based system. Uh, the United States is refusing to um, renew the appointments or create new appointments of the judges to the appellate body. Uh, there's supposed to be seven of those. There's only um, three left uh, as of the 10th of December, one left. So that's it, no more effective dispute settlement procedures. If you've got rules that can't be enforced, well, they're not really rules, are they? I'm the director of the APEC Study Centre at RMIT. Uh, the Study Centre is uh, almost the only research institute in Australia that has carriage of APEC. Others do include APEC, but this is obviously squarely focused on APEC, uh, and we work with government and with the private sector to develop new ideas uh, for the future of APEC, but just as importantly, to work in areas such as capacity building. You see, APEC is a cooperative arrangement, uh, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, uh, so it's not so much a negotiating forum for trade deals, but to help other countries uh, develop their capacity in whatever area it might be, in infrastructure, the digital economy, um, regulation and so on. Yeah, I think when we talked before, um, you indicated you wanted to sort of get your feet on the ground, get a plan in place for what you wanted to do with the centre, you know, going forward. I just wonder what your plans are. Yeah, the it. advisory board uh, that we've now set up will meet to do exactly that, uh, to have a look at some bare bones of a plan, but I didn't want to be overly prescriptive because this is a very high-powered group uh, of uh, people who've had experience in APEC, including Joanna Hewitt, who's um, been deeply involved in APEC, Ross Garno, whose thought leadership really 
was a source of inspiration for APEC and his work on Australia and the Northeast Asian ascendancy. Simon Newnham from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Uh, we've got professors from Sydney University and, uh, uh, you know, it's a very high-powered group. So I, I w have a few ideas, but I thought it was pretty important uh, to tap into the ideas of people who are deeply experienced in APEC. Yes, on the question of the impetus for a particular for the centre itself, I mean, it's been in in existence, what, for a decade or so now, or even yes, more? Yes, so it was formerly at Monash University. It moved to RMIT. The idea of a centre is not uniquely Australian. Uh, there are APEC study centres in most of the member countries of APEC. Uh, I know China has two or three, uh, and it really is to provide that academic input, but applied academic input into policy formulation for APEC. Can I ask you a bit of a personal question? You've got a hell of a lot on your plate one way or another. I was just looking through your CV earlier. Uh, you, you've taken this on. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's on top of a lot of other things. Um, why have you done it? There's a heritage here. Um, when I worked with Bob Hawke as his economic and trade advisor, we were very much occupied with the idea of reorienting the Australian economy from a shrinking, inward-looking economy protected by high trade barriers, which was really the post-war story of Australia, and uh, turning it into an outward-looking economy looking to our own region uh, and obviously China was important in that but so was Japan and, and what have become the members of APEC. Uh, so that refocusing or reorientation of the Australian economy, most people if not all agreed that that was fundamental to securing 28 years of recession-free economic growth. So when the opportunity of uh, director of the APEC Study Centre uh, came up, it's like connecting the past to the future. Both um, President Trump and, to a degree, our Prime Minister Scott Morrison have uh, complained that uh, China is maintaining its claim as a developing economy in the World Trade Organisation. These are self appointed description. So when a country joins the WTO, as China did in 2001, it described itself as a developing economy. The significance of that, in principle, is that you could um, sign up to agreements but implement them more slowly. There are potentially some benefits, if you like, of being a developing economy. However, when you look at what China has done, and I'm not saying China has been virtuous in all uh, aspects of the WTO behaviour, it hasn't actually taken advantage of this developing economy status. So it's like barking up the wrong tree. If you want to um, have a critique of China's behaviour in the WTO, by all means do it on the objective facts. But China did avail itself of this self-nomination of a developing economy, but hasn't exploited it in any material way. So my view is if there is some specific issue um, or behaviour uh, that's, uh, in which China is involved, then go to that, but not these sort of symbolic issues. I mean, do you think the organisation without American leadership and buy-in is in peril? It is in peril. It's uh, confronting its greatest risks since this is the World Trade Organization since its formation. 
1948. And let us all remember that the reason for establishing the predecessor to the World Trade Organization, the GATT, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, was learning out of the Great Depression and the Second World War. And one way Jim Backus, who's a very senior person, American, involved in the WTO for a long time, said to me the real purpose of um, the rules-based global trading system was to avoid World War Three. Well, that's a pretty good idea, isn't it? Avoiding World War Three, And you know, the argument is that World War One and certainly World War Two, at least some of the impetus for those was the creation of these discriminatory trading blocks and the way to integrate the interests of various countries so that you didn't feel compelled to invade them was to have your economy as dependent on them as they are on you, an intertwined global system of rules. Now, once that breaks down, who knows what the future might hold? Yeah, on that question, uh, what role does Australia have in all of this? Australia has earned, all the way going back to 1947, a reputation as an honest broker not a power broker. Uh, we are at best a middle-ranking uh, economy. But when we speak at the WTO or of the WTO, uh, people tend to listen to Australia because they think it, Australia has the best interests of the system at heart. It's not aligning itself with the US or aligning itself with China or the EU or any other grouping. And that has potentially a lot of force. So when people think, oh, well, it's just little old us, you know, against these giants, America and, and uh, China, uh, we're bigger than that. But we're not so big that we can persuade um, both of those countries to get on better together. And that's what worries me. Can APEC itself uh, be a vehicle yes. for you know, advancing those sorts of discussions. And here's the distinction. So the answer is yes. APEC is not a negotiating body which le which ends up in uh, agreements that are enforceable. It is um, the other APEC, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. And that's really the force of APEC. And that's why I describe it as the hope of the side because other institutions are potentially more confrontational than APEC. Now, that uh, doesn't mean that APEC is immune from um, tension, and we've seen that with uh, lack of leader statements and so on. But because its nature is more cooperative and collaborative, I think it has the potential to um, help us ride through this very difficult period, not the least of which is because both China and the United States are members of APEC. Well, the obvious question, I guess, after your response is where actually should APEC focus its energies and I, I guess where should we be putting our shoulder to the wheel? Yeah, first and foremost, um, because it is urgent, uh, the rules-based global trading system needs the attention of APEC. Now, without much fanfare, but very encouragingly, trade ministers met in 2019 around the middle of the year and actually agreed a statement that's pretty good and it actually talks about reforming the World Trade Organization. So here we are with the C bit, the cooperation. Um, quite often, uh, trade ministers' statements or communiques are adopted at least in part in the leaders' statements later in the year. 
unfortunately, because of Chile could not host APEC, I think there are a million people in the streets um, objecting not to APEC but to the government in Chile, uh, that leader statement has not materialised because they didn't meet. But they will meet in Malaysia in 2020. And that's a great kind of point because that's the end of the Bogor period which was a commitment in 1994 to achieving substantially free and open trade. And by that benchmark, APEC's done a pretty good job. Just on Bogor, could you give us your assessment, you know, from having studied it over a long period of time, whether it's met its expectations and whether we need, whatever it will be, another Bogor-type declaration? Well, we probably do need another Bogor declaration, but not necessarily on conventional trade barriers. Bogor was really about tariffs and quantitative restrictions. Very easy to measure. You know, if a tariff's 30%, 20% or doesn't exist, we don't have to argue about that. These are the facts. Um, The same thing with quantitative restrictions on imports. Uh, The assessment is, objectively, that uh, the goals have been met because it says substantially free and open and uh, there have been a lot of tariff reductions within the region. Again, not negotiated um, by APEC uh, as a rules-based system itself, but we now have, for example, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership without the US, TPP minus one. We've got the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership without India, so RCEP minus one. I have this idea, I won't call it a dream, of TPP minus one and RCEP minus one being merged into a very big agreement uh, which would continue that process of dismantling the remaining trade barriers. And what role would APEC play in bringing that There about? is an ideal in APEC and it's been there for a long time. I don't like acronyms, so I'll use it and then explain it. FTAP, Free Trade Area for Asia and the Pacific, of Asia and the Pacific. So this idea is that you've got one big chunk of countries in the TPP, another chunk of countries in RCEP, and a big overlapping group in both, for example, Australia. Um, and so if you could combine those and pick up the remaining countries, which wouldn't actually be very hard, that would uh, include Colombia, which would come in through another grouping, which is the Pacific Alliance, and they're doing the same thing. That's Colombia, Peru, uh, Mexico, and Chile. So you've got these countries that are moving to free and open trade. Uh, you'd need to pick up Papua New Guinea. I don't think that'd be too hard. And then you, if you settled on the same rules within those two agreements, you've got pretty much the free trade area of Asia and the Pacific. But at this stage, without India and the United States, I guess. Well, that's right. And India is not in APEC, um, but that doesn't mean it couldn't join. Like, I, I, I don't envisage this free trade area of Asia and the Pacific as free trade amongst them and big, nasty trade barriers against other countries. In fact, countries would be invited in. If you want to really shoot the breeze on this, you could then approach the EU. Uh, and But this is down the track. You know, I'm talking probably 15, 20 years. But what, what this could do is set up a bit of a competition between the World Trade Organization, which is looking at all this expanding regional group that could even go to the EU and say, hey, why don't we do this? Maybe at that time or well before it, the Americans would say, um, 
actually we started this whole thing positively. We've been negatively involved under President Trump. How about we come back in? On the this big omnibus free trade agreement of Asia and the Pacific, what are the sort of areas that where most could be achieved or realistically achieved to bring together the region from a trading perspective? In uh, trade parlance, uh, behind the... Um, behind the tariff walls, there are restrictions that are actually or notionally put in place for health reasons and other environmental reasons and so on. Every country is entitled to do that, um, but sometimes they are used as a de facto trade barrier. So these um, behind the walls restrictions would be uh, an area uh, that should be subject to further liberalisation while each country retains the right genuinely, you know, to prescribe its own health standards and so on. I think that's a matter of sovereignty, but not where they're used um, really as a, a way of limiting trade. That's also the World Trade Organization's rules too. You can do this, but not when the, you know, your primary motive is actually to limit trade. What do you think China's game plan is here? Um, it has expressed interest, has it not, Craig, in the free trade agreement of Asia and the Pacific? The, yeah. The, you know, the, as we said, the omnibus scheme. So can you just put into words what do you think the Chinese game plan is here as far as... Well, China, uh, I think, would like to system. take on the mantle of the champ champion of an open trading system. The problem that they have is that they have a lot of state subsidies for their corporations. They understand the tension between these. Um, and when I was talk, talking earlier in our discussion about um, uh, the developing economy status, uh, I think that is uh, beside the point. What is the point is that China now understands that it's pretty difficult to have a free and open trade and global trading rules when as a, as a government it subsidises the production of key um, materials and uh, services, but most particularly, for example, uh, steel. So there's an argument that China overproduces steel and um, yet that overproduction isn't really covered under the current rules. Let's have a look at that and let's have China realise that if it wants to take a leadership role, over time at least, and most people would say, yep, let's do it over time, it needs to reduce those subsidies. And RCEP would be a preliminary step, wouldn't it? Well, that's along, right. Yeah. Along the way, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Well, Maybe. another, I mean, just to show the um, potential of APEC, when I was Trade Minister, we negotiated and leaders accepted in 2012 a reduction in tariffs to no more than 5% on 56 different environmental goods. Environmental goods would be things like solar cells and um, wind turbines and um, water purification plants and so on. Uh, and that was a really hard-fought negotiation, but we achieved that in, at Vladivostok. That agreement, which again I emphasise is a voluntary agreement, if one country said, you know, we've gone back and we've thought about it, we're not going to do it, you know, people would probably write them a letter and say well, how disappointed we are. And that's about the extent of it. But that was actually imported into the WTO um, as an environmental goods agreement for negotiation. And then it stalled. And uh, going back to the beginning in a way, what are your immediate objectives 
for the centre? Could you just outline that? Of course, there's multiple objectives, but it'd be best if I picked out a couple. Uh, one is women's empowerment within uh, APEC. Uh, we hear a lot about inclusive growth and people go off to Davos in Switzerland and a um, very lovely ski resort and talk about how they need to be more inclusive and the protests occurring outside and the police are holding the protesters back. Talking about inclusive growth is easy, uh, achieving it is harder, but I think a key to it is that women are fantastic um, by and large at creating new small businesses. Uh, they are often the instigators of that. So women's empowerment and access to finance and even access to some of the basic legal rights that men have within the region is, I think, a real um, winner, potentially. The second is energy policy. The way we're going, every country of the APEC region will miss its Paris targets by a long, long way. And one of the drivers for that is air conditioning. Um, more urbanisation, higher living standards, hot countries, cold countries. What do you want? Air conditioning. No one's going to be saying, you can't have it because you're putting carbon into the atmosphere. So I think a, a collaboration on energy policy, which involves a couple of big um, interrupters uh, to this trend of rapidly increasing emissions in the form of hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. Both of them uh, have been known about for a long time. There's some encouraging signs uh, now towards commercialisation, but if we don't do something like that, then uh, we're going to cook. Craig Emerson, thank you very much. Thanks, Tate. Thank you for listening to Blue Notes. This podcast was produced by the Blue Notes editorial team with music by Kevin McLeod. Blue Notes is a publication of ANZ Banking Group.